the mercies of God are new every morning. We come this morning to turn our minds and our heart and our attention to Him and to His Word. Beth read our text this morning. I'm going to open your Bibles to the book of Acts and the fifth chapter. We have an unusual offering experience in the life of the church. We have, in our study, been seeing how God launched the church and how the gospel was going forth and thousands were being saved. And then we have an account here that's, uh, that, that's shocking in its abruptness and shocking in its content. We have a man named Ananias and his wife, Sapphira, who determined to basically embezzle, to defraud the Lord. We'll get into the text a little bit later. And as Ananias first comes, and then three hours later, Sapphira comes, they, they come to deceive and to steal glory, and God does not allow that to take place. The Holy Spirit strikes them dead. We jokingly... I told Tim and Beth they should do a dual reading. And when Beth gets to the part where Peter says, Ananias, why have you come lying to the Holy Spirit? And Ananias falls over dead. Tim just should have fell over on the platform as a visual aid. And I'm confident that that would kind of bring a little bit more life to the story as far as uh, connecting with it visually. But this is an unusual account to include. I do want you to know that one of the very first things you can take from this is this gives testimony to the veracity of Scripture. Because were we collecting a, a section of stories, were we collecting things that we wanted to put in our history, this is the first public sin. This is the first sin entering the church and God disciplining that sin and it being dealt with publicly that we have. Now we have other struggles that come later and our series is the church grows and, and we want God's church to grow. We want lost people to get saved. We want saved people to be connected to the body. We want to continue to grow in our pursuit of God in our spiritual walk in our relationship with Him. And yet, I think we need to grasp and understand that as the church grows, that there are going to be struggles. There are going to be times when we have to allow the Holy Spirit to deal with our hearts and to deal with the issues of of sin. This is an, an embarrassing story in the life of the church. And, and since only selective stories were recorded, why not just edit this one out? Why not just sweep it aside? I, I do want you to know that at the end of this, we saw the church growing as a result of this or after this. And this seems kind of a bizarre approach to church growth, a death at the offering, a devastating Sunday in the early church. And there's a lot of things that can be misconstrued from this. So I want us to be very careful as we walk through this passage. To look at the passage of scriptures, the words that are used, the content, so that we can understand the point. And as we get to this, there's a few things that we need to make sure we understand that the point is not. Things that you should not take from this. One of those is, this is not give all your money or you'll die. All right, That's not what's taking place here. Uh, this is not a demand for even an offering at this point. This is also not some sort of Christians should practice socialism. You understand what was taking place in the church. 
uh, all of these Jewish now believers who had come to Pentecost heard the gospel and they were there. Plus there was a large number of, of poor. The church had grown 3,000 the first day, 5,000 we read in Acts chapter 5. And this is just the men. When you count the women and the children, there could have been 20,000 people in this church. And, and there, there was a difficulty. There was a problems. And, and where we saw, as far as people having a place to stay and people having food to eat, what we saw at the end of, of chapter 4 was that Everybody was there together with one heart and one soul, and no one considered everything, anything their own, but they were selling things and bringing the proceeds to lay at the feet of the apostles so that needs would be met. And some people have said, well, this is the concept of, of, of redistribution of wealth, if you want to use a current political term. And that's certainly not what's being taught here. As a matter of fact, when Peter spoke to Ananias, and I want us to just read those verses 1 through 11. Beth read the larger context uh, to, to help us understand exactly what was taking place, but I want us to focus again on just this event that's taking place here. Acts chapter 5, verse 1, But there was a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira. By the way, Ananias means beloved of God. Sapphira means uh, sapphire, uh, a thing of beauty, who sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself. Now, I want you to look at that word, kept back. It's important. We'll get to that in just a moment. Some of the proceeds, and he brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back, same phrase, for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it, did it not remain your own? Again, this is not socialism. He's saying, you own the land. It was your own to do with as you chose to do. Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? Even after he sold it, the proceeds were his to do with what he chose to do. He, Peter continues, you have lied not to man but to God. And when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last in great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. We'll just pause right there in our reading. We'll pick back up in just a moment. So this is not just give money or you'll die. And this is not some sort of socialism. These, the words kept back there is a very specific word. It's a word that is used to, to uh, when I looked it up, it said purloin or embezzle, to steal. Obviously what had taken place was we just read where Barnabas had sold a field and he brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet and his name was Joseph, but they began calling him Barnabas, the son of encouragement. We saw that people were thinking nothing that was their own was their own, but they were making all things available. And so obviously this was an activity that was taking place. And because this word is used, the, the understanding that we get from the text is not that the land didn't belong to them, not that they were being coerced to give it away, not that they were selling it and they were being coerced to give the whole thing away, but rather that they had entered into some sort of agreement, that they had said, we're going to sell this land and we're going to take all the proceeds and we're going to bring it to the church. And lay it at the apostles' feet for the good of, of, of the Christians in this city. I would imagine that as that declaration was made, that there would have been Christians there who were like, well, praise the Lord, this is another example of yieldedness. In, in these resources are necessary and needful. Lord, let this piece of property sell for a good amount. Uh, and one commentator even said they probably got more than what they were expecting and so they just changed their mind and decided to keep part of it the problem was not that they kept something back the problem was that they lied to the holy spirit 
The issue in this, in this event is deceit. They had agreed and promised this to the church leaders. They made a commitment. Then they did not follow through on the commitment, but they professed that they had. So it's not give all your money and your die. It's not that Christians should practice socialism or some sort of enforced redistribution of wealth. But it's also not that sin will always be judged immediately. This sin was judged immediately. As soon as Ananias brought this up and made this profession, the Holy Spirit revealed an apostolic revelation to Peter. And Peter called him out on it. And as soon as he called him out on it, Ananias died. Three hours later, his wife, Sapphira, comes and she was completely in on this. They were in agreement. And when Peter asked her, and she also continued the deceit, and he called her out on it, she immediately died. There was an immediate consequence. And there are times when the Holy Spirit works so directly and so immediately that in this case, when someone lied, they died. Or as we've been seeing, when someone was sick and the request was made, they were immediately healed. Or as we saw in chapter 2, when someone needed to speak a language to communicate the gospel and they did not study it, the Holy Spirit gave them the ability to speak that language. There are times in Scripture where there is a need, and then that need is addressed immediately. But sometimes, often, judgment and our blessing can be delayed, both in Psalm 50 and in Psalm 73, in several places in the Psalms and throughout Scripture. We have the warning for those who are in rebellion against God, for those who are hiding their sin, concealing their sin, rebelling against God. And they say, well, God's not going to do anything. I can tell because He hadn't done anything yet. I did this. I got away with it. It's smooth sailing. I must be okay. And the psalmist again says, judgment is delayed, but judgment is sure. My grandma used to say, be sure your sins will find you out. Be sure your sins will find you out. This event in the history of the church is not unlike, it's very similar, has a lot in common with the sin of Achan recorded in our daily Bible reading in the book of Joshua that we just read not long ago, where they conquered Jericho and they were supposed to not take anything at all, and yet Achan did. He, he took from the city, he buried what he had taken in his tent, and God said there's sin in the camp. And the sin in the camp has to be addressed. And it has to be addressed now. And it has to be addressed severely. And Achan, and not only Achan, but his family were stoned. And the whole nation of Israel experienced the consequences of that. We do have another New Testament account where we see that people died as a consequence of their sin. It's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 where the Apostle Paul is, is correcting the sins of the church at Corinth. Where they have been wrongly in a wrong manner for a wrong reason and, and for their own benefit partaking of the Lord's Supper and Paul said for this reason because of your sin in this area there are some who are sick among you and some who sleep some who have died we need to understand that there are times when the Holy Spirit acts immediately and there are times when the consequences of our sin rise to the surface but there are other times when it is delayed and there is an opportunity for repentance you will note that Ananias and Sapphira were not given the opportunity to make it right. They were called on it and judgment came immediately. So we see some things that the point is not in, the te in this text, but there are a few things that are abundantly clear. And one of the things is that sin, even hidden sin, sin that is not overt, is serious in the life of believers. But not only is it serious in the life of believers, it is serious in the life of a church. 
It is serious that the power of God through the church as a congregation be displayed and that sin in the life of a believer, sin in the life of a church, particularly, and there's some, some circumstances here that, that matter as we get into this, is a very serious thing. And I have to tell you that in, in our contemporary life and modern society, we don't think of sin as that big a deal. I mean, there are some sins that we think of as really, really, really big deals. And then there are others that we think, well, it's just not that big a deal. Everybody's like that. And we put it off and we put it off dealing with it. We determined not to address it. One of the things that we studied this week on the men's retreat and uh, using uh, A.W. Tozer's book, The Pursuit of God, which Mark addressed a, a little while ago, one of the things that we talked about was the, the things that keep us. What are the things that keep us from pursuing God, from being yielded to God, from removing the veil, from getting into the presence of God? One of those things is simply unconfessed sin, abiding sin, besetting sin, sin that we just excuse, sins that we do not want exposed. And because we don't want them exposed, in the light of God's glorious presence, we simply avoid acknowledging his presence. As a church, we are preparing for the future God has for us. And we have been spending time this year particularly focused, saying, God, how would you have us prepare for the future that you have for us? To reach the West End community, to reach our friends and our families, to make a difference in the city of Greenville, the place that you have put us. And as we pray and as we went through our congregational prayer time in January and February, one of the things that we consistently prayed was, God, do whatever it takes to be glorified in us. What if that's what it takes? What if it takes a public confrontation of sin? What if it takes the personal confrontation of sin in our life? The title of this sermon is Pursuing Holiness or Pursuing Purity. And that's what God desires from us. We do know one of the consequences as a result of this, both in verse 5 and verse 11, was great fear came upon all who heard it. Whatever the point is, it does lead us to fear and reverence in awe of who God is and how He works. And so, let's talk about purity and let's talk about growth for just a moment. If you're taking notes on your outline, this is something I want you to write down because it's something I think is important for us to really have driven home. Pursuing purity is a daily process of surrender. Am I pursuing God? Well, I did yesterday. That's not enough for today. I need to be pursuing God today. Am I turning and acknowledging the presence of God? Am I seeking to glorify God in my life? This is a continual daily process of surrender. And there are some lessons that we learn. I mean, we, we mature. There is definite progress in our sanctification, in our pursuing purity, in our pursuing holiness. Paul tells the church that we are to walk circumspectly. I love that word. It's a King James word. ESV uses a different translation. This is in Ephesians chapter 5, where he says that we need to live our lives that are pleasing to God, that we need to be imitators of God as beloved children, walking in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering. When you get down to verse 15 of, of Ephesians chapter 5, he says, look carefully then how you walk. Live circumspectly. Um, not as unwise, but wise, making the best use of the time for the days of evil. Don't be foolish. In the, the tense there is, don't continue living foolishly, but rather understand what the will of the Lord is. Now, let me give you a principle about spiritual growth. Spiritual growth is not a perfect bell curve, and it's certainly not a perfect increasing line on some sort of graph. 
There are times when we make gains in our spiritual walk and times when the Holy Spirit deals with us and He always deals with us at the point that we're not willing to release, at the point with the thing that we're not willing to let go of. It may be a sin that we're, that we're um, enslaved to, willingly enslaved to, because as believers, we can be set free. We have been set free. We may not have claimed that freedom in experiencing it and walking in it. It's one of the joys, one of the promises of Romans chapter 5, that on the cross, Jesus freed us from the power of sin over us. Not from the presence, from the power of sin over us. It may be uh, an attitude that we've had that we've not been willing to relinquish. It may be, it could, whatever the point is where you're not willing to let go, where you're not willing to empty yourself, where you're not willing to say, here I am, take me, use me, fully yielded, whatever that sticking point is, that's where the Holy Spirit will convict you. And I will tell you that it's a moving thing. And we will have times when the Holy Spirit convicts us or the Holy Spirit teaches us and encourages us and enlightens us. And we have an encounter and a, uh, an interaction with God that is cleansing and it is cathartic. It is purifying. And it is a great high. I can think of several of them recorded through the life of Israel in the Old Testament that we've just recently been reading in the past few months. When Moses was used by God to bring the children of Israel out of Egypt and Egyptian slavery. They came to the Red Sea. Egyptian army at their back, a sea at their front. What are we going to do? And they cried out to God. Moses cried out to God. God told him to raise his staff over the, over the sea. And as he did, God rolled back the waters. And the children of Israel walked across on dry ground. And then when the Egyptian army, the armies of Pharaoh, sought to pursue them, God released the waters and He defeated the army, killed the army right there. And the children of Israel were delivered. And in Ephesians, Exodus chapter 14, you got a celebration. Look how God worked. Hallelujah. Good days. At the beginning of the chapter, at the end of the chapter, they want to go back to Egypt. At the end of the chapter, they go three days out into the wilderness and they come to a place called Marah. And it's called Marah because Marah means bitter. And the water there was bitter and they were thirsty and they didn't know what they were do, going to do. And so they have this great time of victory and then they're met with their first difficult circumstance and they have their first taste of rebellion and, 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 and struggle. You guys remember Elijah on Mount Carmel? You remember King Ahab, Queen Jezebel, the story of Elijah on Mount Carmel? You have the priests of Baal and they establish an altar and Elijah who establishes an altar to God and they put the sacrifice on the altar and they put wood to burn the sacrifice. And the prophets of Baal, they cry out and they cry out for hours and hours and hours and Elijah even sticks the knife in. He's like, maybe he's asleep, cry louder. And nothing happens. When it comes to Elijah. Elijah says, go bring water. And they bring water three times. And they pour it on the altar, the wood, the sacrifice, all of it. And Elijah prays, and God sends down fire and consumes the offering. A testimony to the goodness of God, a mighty, moving, visible evidence of God. What happens in the next chapter? Elijah fears for his life and runs. He's ministered to by God and he's rescued. But this great high, this, this great success, this great victory is almost immediately followed by the greatest challenges, by the greatest struggles, by the greatest temptations to fall away. What's happened here in the book of Acts? Maybe 20,000 people have come to know the Lord, certainly 15. 
they started gathering in Solomon's portico and Solomon's colonnade where they're being taught. They're together in one heart and one mind. They're experiencing the great grace of God. This is a movement of God, an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. There are still signs and wonders being done. There's the healings that are taking place. There are the testimonies of the goodness of God. There are the lives that are being rescued. Hallelujah. It is revival time. And what is the first thing that we find in Acts chapter 5? Once we get some sort of standard ongoing practice, we find sin entering the camp through the hypocrisy of Ananias and Sapphira. Their problem was not that they didn't give enough. Their problem was not that they gave it all or not. Their problem was they were hypocrites. They wanted glory of a changed heart without the reality of a changed heart. They wanted the reputation of a Barnabas without being a Barnabas internally. They were hijacking the glory that should have been God's. They were hypocritical in what they did. They were lying to the congregation at church. And I want to tell you that you and I, as we grow in our Christian walk, and even as a church, as we go through the ups and downs of Christian life, we need to make sure that we are continuing to pursue purity. And we pursue God. We walk in that pursuit. And how do we do that? We do it day by day by day by day. And then one of the lessons that you can learn here is, of course, the sin of hypocrisy is what's called out here. And so you need to recognize that what is clear here is that the Holy Spirit has zero tolerance. No tolerance for hypocrisy. Now that should, that should scare us all because what is hypocrisy? Hypocrisy is when you present yourself as something that you are not. And every believer at some time or the other presents yourself as something that you're not. And every church, because it's filled with people, has times when we deal with the issues that we should be dealing with or we don't deal with the issues that we should be dealing with because we want to put our best foot forward because we don't want to point out the bad because we don't want to call out things that need to be addressed. We need to understand that what is clear in this passage is that the Holy Spirit has no tolerance for hypocrisy. This is the kind of sin that can remain hidden. Unlike most of the overt sins that Paul lists in Ephesians chapter 5. But this sin doesn't remain hidden. The Lord exposes this sin and makes us aware of it in the most dramatic way possible. By the death of Ananias and the death of Sapphira. No sweeping this under the rug. No putting your best foot forward. No cover up. It seems that with the Holy Spirit that failure with truth is better than success with lies. That admitting your faults and being able to deal with them, that stumbling and falling and not trying to hide it but address it is better than putting on the appearance of success and not dealing with the issues, sweeping them under the rug. That being humbled is better than pretending. That even chaos with integrity is better than keeping things smooth, keeping things calm and being deceitful to do it. Right in the midst of their celebration, right after their highs, this has to be dealt with now. So daily pursuing God, pursuing purity, pursuing holiness does not mean that we can delay dealing with the issues that God brings into our own hearts or reveals that are in our own hearts, which is the second point. I want you to write this down if you can. The Holy Spirit pursues purity over peace. Peter could have said when Ananias brought 
his offering. He could have said, you know, even though the Holy Spirit has revealed to me that he's not being truthful, we don't really want to deal with this. I mean, things are going so good. We've got good crowds. People are getting saved. After all, Ananias and Sapphira, just by default, they're some of the more wealthy members of the church. And, and the gift is probably a large gift. It's probably enough of what he got from the sale that this can be used in a, in a lot of great ways in the life of the church. So let's just not make a big deal of this. But Peter, under the authority and filled with the Holy Spirit, was called to address it, was called to call it out. Rather than have a scandal, you know, he would rather have a scandal than have truth. That he would rather have a scandal that reveals the truth, the truth that reveals the scandal, than a lie that hides it and keeps some sort of peace on the surface. It is the Holy Spirit's job, and He does an excellent job of it through the power of His Word, through the working of the Holy Spirit, to reveal the deceit in our own hearts. But let's look at kind of how the Holy Spirit brings out what took place in Ananias and Sapphira's heart. First of all, in verse 3, He says, Satan filled your heart to lie. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself a part of the proceeds of the land? Ananias could have said, well, Satan made me do it. Then in verse 9, when Sapphira comes in and it's three hours later, there's the influence of a spouse. Peter said that to Sapphira, how is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Ananias could, in making excuses or rationalizing, which we don't see him having any time to do in this text, but had he had the time, he could have said, well, first of all, Satan put it in my heart. The devil made me do it. Or he could have said, you know, Sapphira knew about it. She was in on this. She could have stopped me at the very least. Uh, this woman that you gave me is at least partly her fault. He could have echoed the excuses of Adam in the Garden of Eden. But the Holy Spirit, of course, would not allow that to happen. Verse 4, when Peter calls him out, he says, You have contrived this deed in your heart. They wanted the glory. They wanted the recognition. And they wanted the gold, their own security. And the sin that they committed was the sin that originated in their own heart. In James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, James writes and says, Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. The problem was a heart problem. Hypocrisy and deception. Their desire to want the reputation of Barnabas, but wanting to keep the cash for their own security or either for their own pleasure. They wanted a change in how they were perceived, but no change in their heart. They wanted what one commentator said. They wanted the glory and they wanted the gold. And the only way that they could figure out how to do that was to lie. And to lie publicly, to lie to the Holy Spirit, to lie to the congregation. They deceived in order to promote themselves and to pamper themselves at the same time. And the Holy Spirit says no. And so here's a statement that goes with number two that I think we need to, need to kind of take to heart. Believers and churches must deal with sin. Believers and churches must deal with sin. Now, this is a very serious thing that's happening with Ananias and Sapphira in this early church. And this is not, this is church discipline, yes, but it is church discipline completely 
enacted by the presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of this church. And we, has, has anybody ever told you when, when you asked them about coming to church that they would, but the church is full of hypocrites? Or have you ever heard that the church is full of hypocrites? I have many, many times. Of course, my response is simply, there's always room for another. Come join us. Uh, the, the, the sin of hypocrisy, though, is a sin of being disingenuous. It's a sin of deceit. It's a sin of lying. And what the Holy Spirit does is he shines the light on your heart and on my heart, and he says, here's an issue. Here's an area that you've not surrendered. It may be your life that you've not surrendered. You may, or you may not be part of church. Now, I personally believe Ananias and Sapphira were believers. There's nothing in this text, and there's nothing in the previous text that leads me to believe that they were not believers. They were part of the church, and the church was gathered together, and they were part of their own, and they were all part of this whole process together. But as believers, in their immaturity, I don't know that I would call it immaturity, in their rebellion, when they said, we want to have the respect like Barnabas is getting, but, but we want to keep some of this money for ourselves, and their immediate default was deception, and to deceive the church, to seek to steal glory for themselves, to glory that should be God's through their obedience, and to to disrupt the work of the church. The Holy Spirit says we've got to address this now. There is sin in the camp. There's sin in the camp that's going to have long-term consequences. And he shines the light on it. In the same way that the Holy Spirit shined the light through Peter on Ananias and Sapphira, when we're in the Word of God, or when we're praying, or when we're listening to a sermon, or when we're listening to a Bible study, and the Holy Spirit, you guys know how this works, says, remember that thing you did yesterday? That's wrong. That's a sin. You need to go make it right. Then you need to come back and make it right with me. That time you lost your temper. That time you didn't trust me. That time you said something about somebody that you shouldn't have said about somebody else. That moral failure when you made a, a wrong choice. That sin. And we tend to say, well, I'm okay. I'm okay. I think we can get through this. I, I'll do better in the future. Without ever coming to the point of repentance. We sang this morning about the mercies of God. My sins are many. God's mercy is so much greater. And it is true, according to Romans chapter 8, that there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Because the condemnation for our sin was put upon the Lord Jesus Christ. But keep reading. It says that at that point we no longer walk after the flesh. But now we walk after the Spirit. Dependent upon what Jesus accomplished in, the Christ, in His death on the cross. And the Holy Spirit who has come to indwell us now. And there are consequences when believers sin. Mark talked about our presence of God today. Yes, we have eternity secure, but there is an intimacy with God. You can know God today. You can be right with God today. You can be joyful in your inner being with God today. You can be at peace, have peace and fellowship with God today and not pretend. Not just wish and not just hope and not plan on doing something about it next week or next month or when the time is right. Not think, all right, I've got to deal with this and then I'll be faithful to God. If nothing else, the immediacy of this is a testimony to us that sin matters, that sin is serious and it has to be dealt with. My intent in studying for this message was to take you to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and then 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I'm going to reference you to that. But what you have there is the Apostle Paul writing to the church at Corinth, and he says, man, I, I care about you. I care about your pursuit of 
purity. I care about your holiness and your walk with God. And I am afraid that I'm going to be embarrassed and be humbled when I come to find you saying you're doing one thing and doing exactly the opposite. He says, I think I'm going to find moral failure. I think I'm going to find people lying and slandering and gossiping. I think I'm going to find people living like they did before they got saved as a sign of disobedience in the life. And here's what he says to them. And when I come, I'm going to call you out. When I come, everything that the Holy Spirit reveals to me that needs to be said, I am going to say, and I'm going to say publicly, If it is a public sin that impacts the life of the church, it is a sin that needs to be addressed in the life of the congregation. It's an amazing thing. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 22, chapter 13, verse 5 is is an amazing account of a man who cares about the church that he started so much so that he's not willing to just sweep things under the rug. Sin has to be addressed I I will just read the first part of chapter 13 he says this is the third time that I am coming to you this is uh, actually a second Corinthians this is the third time I am coming to you every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses so when there's a charge or when there's an issue certainly we're going to go through this process I warn those who sinned before and all the others and I warn them now while absent as I did when present on my second visit that if I come again I will not spare them since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me He is not weak in dealing with you. He is powerful among you. He was crucified in weakness, but he lives by the power of God. We also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. And he gives this exhortation. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? And so what is the call here to purity? It's a call to authenticity. It is a call to remove the veil, guys from the retreat. It is a call to allow the Holy Spirit to do its convicting work in our life. And it is a call to completely yielded stand before Him. And I have to tell you, I want to go back to that point where we said this is a daily pursuit. There is progress in the journey, but it is a journey step by step by step. And there will be times when you stumble and there will be times when you fall. And we have a shepherd who loves his sheep enough to correct and to bring back, to convict, to bring to repentance. Here we have him protecting the purity of this congregation because of the glory of God and what was taking place. What happens when we take off the mask? What happens when we fully pursue God, when we authentically meet the test? Well... The third point on your outline is that authentic Christianity glorifies God and it grows the church. Authentic Christianity glorifies God and it grows the church. At the end of this text, picking up with the very last verse, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles and they were all together in Solomon's portico or colonnade. None of the rest dared join them. But the people held them in high esteem, and more than ever, the believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. What happens when your life is authentically 
a disciple? What happens when you're no longer seeking to deceive, certainly between your personal walk with God? But what happens when you, when, when you are willing to allow the Holy Spirit to do His surgical work of removing sin as you confess, agree with God, as you repent, as you say, God, I choose, I choose this day to follow after you. God, this is the direction of my life. I have been living for myself no longer, not worked out very well for me. Struggle after struggle, problem after problem, stress after stress. I have looked to this for help. I have looked to that for help. I have looked to friends. I have looked to other remedies. And we discover there is no help apart from the redeeming work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you come to Him in repentance and faith. And you say, my life is yours. By the way, if you are here and you're saved, you've had that experience. You don't just add the Lord Jesus Christ to your life or add a code of behavior to your life or just join a church membership and get put on the roll and that's it. This is a divine transaction between a lost sinner and a holy God by which He brings illumination, understanding, and enlightenment. He grants repentance and then He brings you to life. But I will tell you that you can stumble and you can move to the point of rebellion. When you do, the Holy Spirit will convict you. If you can live in sin and never be convicted, you're not saved according to First John. When you do, the Holy Spirit will convict and he will, he will bring you to repentance. Three things at the conclusion of this authentic Christianity that glorifies God and grows the church. First of all, people feared the Lord. We've made God our buddy. We've made God our friend. We've made God a God of grace. Please understand me, God is a God of grace. We sing of His mercies and we celebrate His mercies and then we begin to take them for granted. And we say, my life really doesn't matter. This choice really doesn't matter because I can always pray and God will always be merciful. And we no longer pursue God because we've lost the fear of a holy God and His hatred of sin and its, its consequences in your life. Its consequences in the life of His body. Its consequences for the testimony of the church. For a community that desperately needs to see lives transformed by the power of God. They lived in the fear of God. The fear of God was increased. And when it was so, when the church was authentic like this, the people who were not part of the church. By the way, Solomon's portico is a public gathering. It's a public place. And there were people there who saw all this stuff taking place. And they said, not for us. But they're serious about it. It's not for me. I'm not going to be a part of this, but... They're not playing over there. This isn't just an activity. This isn't just a club. This isn't just a meeting. Something real is going on over there. And the people held them in high esteem. But what did happen is that more and more, as a matter of fact, many more, as a matter of fact, he uses the word here, multitudes came to the point of repentance and faith. They came and were saved. The church increased in number. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women. This is a, an unusual text for us to study at church on Sunday morning. I did hear one preacher use this text to take up an offering. To do so is to abuse the text. But I think the point that the Holy Spirit has really driven home to me and continues to drive home to me 
is that there are things that the Holy Spirit identifies and points out in my life that I need to say. I need, it's to the point now where it's not, well, I didn't know. It's to the point now, well, I know, but I don't really want to do anything much about it. And while His mercies are new every morning, and while His grace is sufficient for every sin, the Bible makes it abundantly clear that there will come a time when you will become so hardened to the voice of the Holy Spirit that you will not be granted the opportunity for repentance. Sin matters. And their problem was a heart problem. They wanted glory. They may have wanted greed. They may have been greedy. They certainly wanted the recognition that came. They may have been trying to put themselves forward. Their problem was pride that evidenced itself in hypocrisy and deceit before the whole congregation and God dealt with it before the whole congregation and here's something that we need to understand there is an appropriate fear of God and when I mean fear I mean afraid he is mighty and he is go back and read what we've already read in the Old Testament about how the children of Israel saw the display of the presence of God and they said we can't handle this that's too much for us he's too much for us we're in fear of our lives simply because God showed up and yet Moses was able to meet with God in the tent of meeting Exodus 33 11, as a man meets with his friend and there needs to be this first fear of the transcendence and holiness of God that leads to this second fear of awe and respect that makes us run to God not away from God the fear of being disconnected from God, the fear of the consequences of unaddressed sin, the awe and reverence that God demands and desires. There's a fear that's good and right and appropriate. And so here's what I want for me and, and for you. I want, I want us to pursue God. I want us to pursue, pu- to pursue, <laughs> I can't do this, can I? To pursue purity and holiness for His glory. And for our good. And I want the authenticity of our lives. To be a testimony. So that even when people think you're nuts. Even when people think you're some sort of religious fanatic. Even when people think you're crazy to believe what you believe. They respect your authenticity. And the testimony of your life. And God is glorified. That only happens when we surrender all. Aren't you glad that happens when we surrender all? This is something that happens when we surrender all of our lives and all of our being to who God is continually. We'll come back next week when we talk about the growth of the church. God had to deal with this issue. This is a crash. The first sin publicly identified in the church. And yet, the next part becomes a great movement forward. And then we have another problem. And then we have a great movement forward. And then we have another problem that has to be addressed. And then we have another great movement forward. And what you see is this pattern of growth followed by God's correction. Followed by God's instruction about a need that needs to be addressed. And it moves us to what comes next. And I'm excited to see where God takes me. I'm excited to see where God takes my family. I'm excited to see where God takes us as we pursue Him. Stand with me, please, as we pray a prayer of surrender, as we pray a prayer of yieldedness to God.
Father, thank you for the privilege that we have to be witnesses to the story of Ananias and Sapphira. It's not our favorite story. It's not one that we want to know. There are too many times in our own lives when we deceive. We can deceive ourselves, and we certainly seek to deceive others. But, Father, help us to realize we can't fool you. That heaven is not deceived. Whatever is hidden on earth is revealed in heaven. That the Holy Spirit will not be lied to and will not be deceived. Father, forgive us for when we try to present ourselves as better as we are, better than we are, when we're in your presence. When we seek to rationalize or excuse away or sweep under the rug things that you want to bring into the light so that they can be addressed, so that they can be dealt with. Father, I pray that you'll help us individually, help us in our family, certainly help us as a church to live lives of authenticity. That only happens as we continually daily walk circumspectly as we walk pursuing purity day by day by day as we recognize your desire that we sin must be dealt with that it it can't just be ignored or pushed back and yet the consequence of that even though it's so hard to go through it's so much better God is glorified lives are transformed and that's the testimony that we want to be in our church as we surrender all to you. In your name I pray. Amen.